Hey folks, attorney Andrew Branca here from Law of Self-Defense. Yesterday was the seventh day of testimony in the murder trial of Curtis Reeves, the retired Tampa SWAT captain who shot and killed Chad Olson in a local movie theater in January 2014 after the two men had a verbal altercation that became physical. The defense presented seven additional witnesses yesterday, if we include carrying over forensic video consultant David Koenig from the previous day as the first witness of the morning. Successive witnesses included Joanna Turner, another theater eyewitness who observed some of the interaction between Rees and Olson, Sergeant David Duff, and Corporal Christina Demas, two police officers who responded to the scene of the shooting as part of the investigation, Dawn and Michelle Simpson, the woman seen at the customer service desk where Reeves went to complain about Olson's cell phone usage, and the theater manager himself, Thomas Peck, who was at that customer service desk handling complaints. The highlight of the day, however, was the final witness, Dr. Bernard Adams, the forensic pathologist expert witness retained by the defense. Indeed, once again, the state managed to score a rather impressive, massive own goal in an inept cross-examination of a defense witness, as they'd done previously with Vivian Reeves and others. The expression on Dr. Adams' face at the end of cross-examination rather tells the story and can be seen in the featured image to today's content. The video testimony of all seven of these witnesses is, of course, embedded in the text version of today's content, although our commentary here will be focused on the testimony of Dr. Adams. Before we dive in, I'd like to mention our sponsor, CCW Safe, a provider of legal service memberships, what many people mistakenly call self-defense insurance. In effect, CCW Safe promises to pay their members legal expenses if the member is involved in a use of force event, and those expenses start big and get bigger fast, folks. If you've been compelled to defend yourself or your family, find yourself charged with murder or manslaughter, you can easily burn through $200,000 before you even get to trial. So if you don't have that kind of money stuffed in a mattress, just in case you are compelled to act in self-defense, it can be helpful to have a financial partner standing behind you to make sure you have the resources you need to fight that legal battle the way you want it fought as if the rest of your life depends on it, because really it does. Now, I've looked at all the companies that offer similar services, as you might imagine, and I found that CCW Safe is by far the best fit for me. I'm personally a member. My wife, Emily, is personally a member. Whether they're the best fit for you is something only you can decide, but I do urge you to take a look at what they have to offer by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. And if you do decide to become a member there, you can save 10% off your membership using the discount code LOSD10. That's LOSD for Law of Self-Defense and the number 10 at that URL, lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. Also, once again today, we'll be doing a live stream analysis and commentary over at Rakita Law YouTube channel of this case. Uh, He's also on Odyssey and Rumble. You'll be able to find today's live show for the eighth day of this trial at YouTube at lawofselfdefense.com slash popcorn8. That's popcorn and the number eight. All right, let's dive into Dr. Bernard Adams' testimony, forensic pathologist hired as an expert witness by the defense He was presented as the final witness of yesterday's proceedings and has often been the case in his trial. Much of the testimony of Dr. Adams was tiresome in the extreme. The cross-examination would make all the tiresome portions worth it, however. 
So on direct questioning, most of it was conducted, it was all conducted by defense counsel Dino Michaels, but most of it was focused on theoretical injuries that Curtis Reeves might have suffered at the hands of Chad Olson had Olson followed through on his initial physical aggression upon Reeves rather than been stopped by Reeves' .380 caliber bullet to the chest. These theoretical injuries included a great deal of potential skeletal damage, including broken bones of the skull, like the temple, orbital sockets, jaw, teeth, chin bones, as well as the spine and ribs. Potential soft tissue injuries were also referenced, including to the liver, spleen, even the testicles. For this lengthy, really far too lengthy discussion, the defense had rolled out a suspended human skeleton for demonstrative purposes. In fact, Reeves suffered no such actual injury. Of course, lawful self-defense does not require the defender to suffer even so much as a scratch before they are privileged to use defensive force. Rather, the law allows for the use of defensive force to prevent an attack or injury that is imminently about to happen. You need not take the first punch or bullet before you are privileged to defend yourself. So understanding the dangerous injuries to which Reeves might eminently have been subject is certainly relevant in this case. Whether such lengthy testimony was required by Dr. Adams on this matter is more questionable, however. The jury's likely to know, to a large extent, that the thrown fists of a towering 6-foot-4-inch, 220-pound, 43-year-old are likely to cause serious bodily injury when hurled against a seated 71-year-old. More modest testimony would likely have been sufficient to make clear that these injuries could be deadly in nature in the legal sense, meaning could well have constituted serious bodily injury. Nevertheless, Dr. Adams' testimony grew more interesting near the end of his direct examination by Attorney Michaels when he began to address the stippling observed on Chad Olson's hand. Stippling, of course, is the result of unburned powder ejected from the muzzle of a gun along with the bullet in a cone-shaped pattern centered around the fired round. Over the distance of a couple of feet, this unburned powder has sufficient momentum and mass to embed itself in human skin. The pattern that results can be informative circumstantial evidence about the relative positions and postures of the body stippled relative to the muzzle of the gun. With respect to Chad Olson, there was additional forensic evidence that added value to the stippling assessment. The bullet that would enter Olson's chest and kill him had first grazed the top of Olson's hand at right about the base knuckle of the thumb. This grazing wound to the hand can be matched to the path of the bullet inside Olson's chest so that we can know the relative position of the hand to both the chest and to the muzzle of Reeves' gun when that single round was fired. The result of all this is that it can be determined that the back of Olson's hand was facing more or less directly towards the muzzle of Reeves' pistol. Even more interesting, however, is the resultant stippling pattern. Because the Gray's wound identifies the center of the cone of ejected powder, one might expect to see Stippling extending both along Olson's wrist and forearm, as well as out along his fingers. This would be the case if his hand was flat, with the fingers extended, such that the back of the fingers were also facing towards the muzzle of Reeves' pistol. This absence of stippling along the backs of the fingers suggests that the hand was not in a flat configuration, but rather clenched in a fist. Exactly as if Olson's fists were clenched such as to rain punches upon Curtis Reeves, yet more evidence consistent with Reeves' narrative of self-defense.
Now, cross-examination of Dr. Adams was conducted by lead prosecutor Glenn Martin and, as already noted, resulted in another own goal by the state and a personally embarrassing performance by Martin. Martin began poorly by informing Dr. Adams that he intended to cover once again every form of theoretical injury that Adams had already discussed in detail on direct examination. Indeed, Martin explicitly recited a bullet list of the many injuries discussed on direct. This, of course, only once again informed the jury of the many ways Reeves could have suffered serious bodily injury at the hands of the attacking Olsen. It only got worse from there, however. Before digging into the details of those many theoretical injuries, Martin sought to first impeach Dr. Adams' testimony about the relative position and manner of Olson's hand. Isn't it possible that the stippling pattern, with the absence of stippling on the backs of the fingers, resulted from Olson having his wrist bent sharply towards his own body? No, Adams replied. The graze wound informed us that the back of Olson's hand was facing Reeves' muzzle. Well then, isn't it possible that there was no stippling on the fingers because the cone of stippling was not broad enough to reach that far along the hand? No, Adams replied. The stippling surrounds the bullet evenly, so it would be evenly distributed around the graze wound to the hand. And we can tell from how far the stippling extends along the forearm how far the stippling would extend towards the fingertips. Then Prosecutor Martin began to truly implode his cross-examination. Isn't it true, asked Martin, that when you testified in the self-defense immunity hearing in 2017, that you did say one reason there might be no stippling on the fingers was because the cone of stippling might have been too narrow? I don't recall saying that, answered Dr. Adams. It's right here in the transcript, replied Prosecutor Martin, hotly waving the transcript in his hand. Really, replied Adams. Okay, can I see the transcript? Shockingly, Prosecutor Martin replied, no. Then followed a tug of war between Dr. Adams asking to see the transcript that purported to show contradictory testimony by himself five years earlier and Prosecutor Martin's repeated refusal to allow Adams to see that transcript. It created for all the world the appearance that Martin was hiding evidence or at least hiding the cherry picking of out of context prior testimony from the jury. You'll recall that the state had previously been caught doing exactly this kind of out-of-context cherry-picking of prior testimony when they sought to impeach the in-trial testimony of Vivian Reeves earlier in the week. When the court finally ordered Martin to show Dr. Adams the transcript so that the doctor could refresh his recollection, it immediately became clear that at best the prior testimony was ambiguous. Perhaps Dr. Adams suggested he had misunderstood the nature of the question asked five years earlier. In any case, it was his testimony right here in court today that was the medically correct answer to the stippling issue. Further, noted Dr. Adams, he had no way of knowing if the transcript was, in fact, an adequate record of his comments five years prior. The transcript was the result of the work of a court reporter, a non-expert in medical matters who may or may not have accurately captured his testimony. Unlike with a deposition transcript, Dr. Adams had had no opportunity to review the immunity hearing transcript afterwards and ensure it was an adequate record of his testimony. For all he knew, the transcript being waved around by Prosecutor Martin was simply mistaken. This all left Prosecutor Martin visibly enraged. Indeed, so out of sorts was he that he entirely forgot 
to impeach the lengthy bullet list of theoretical injuries that he'd set out for the jury at the start of his cross-examination. The result of this failure was that the jury heard even the state list the many theoretical injuries threatening Reeves, but never heard this laundry list of injuries impeached. It appeared to my eye as if Prosecutor Martin had believed deep in his heart that he had caught Dr. Adams in a gotcha prior inconsistent statement and was utterly confident he was going to destroy the defense expert on the witness stand only to find the destruction turned upon himself and he just couldn't believe it. Frankly, at this point, one wonders if the state in this case is growing panicked. For eight years, Prosecutor Martin and the media, but I repeat myself, have been telling the entire world that Reeves' shooting of Olson was simply a murder over popcorn, and obviously so. Now, perhaps, they are beginning to see a conviction slipping from their grasp, a fear they certainly ought to be realizing at this point at the trial. How incompetent is this prosecution going to look if the case they presented for nearly a decade as obvious malice murder is one they can't convict on? Of course, the video of all of Dr. Adams' testimony as the testimony for all the witnesses is embedded in the text version of today's content, and I would encourage you to watch that cross-examination of Dr. Adams by Prosecutor Martin in particular. Now, to rewind to the start of the day, the first witness was Bruce Koenig, who continued his forensic video consultant expert testimony from the previous day. This again consisted of rather interminable playing of videos and publication of still photos to the jury without any substantive commentary or analysis by Koenig himself. We then heard from Joanna Turner, another theater eyewitness who was seated near the Rees and who observed some of the interaction between Rees and Olson. Turner's testimony was frequently ambiguous, On direct questioning by defense counsel Richard Escobar, she did testify that she appeared to see Olson throw an object at Reeves, and then on cross-examination by prosecutor Scott Rosenwasser, she was less certain about the nature of the object thrown, thinking it might have been a thermos rather than a phone. And of course, like many of the witnesses in the theater, there was many things she did not observe. Overall, however, Turner's testimony was largely consistent with Reeves' narrative of self-defense and certainly not contradictory to it. Indeed, perhaps the most interesting part of Turner's testimony wasn't her testimony itself, but rather the truly remarkable series of leading questions that attorney Escobar was permitted to ask of his witness on direct examination. A leading question is, of course, one in which the question itself suggests the answer. Isn't it true that the suspect's jacket was red instead of, can you tell us what color the jacket was? When called on his leading questions by the defense, Escobar would simply then begin preceding each of his leading questions with the phrase, would you agree or disagree? As if that magically made the question non-leading. Asking, do you or disagree that the jacket was red, is no less a leading question simply because of that prefatory phrase. It was literally laugh-out-loud funny. More remarkably was that Judge Susan Barthel allowed Escobar to get away with this ridiculous series of leading questions with this prefatory comment, which suggests perhaps that Judge Barthel's own understanding of what constitutes a leading question is rather more tenuous than one would expect from a trial judge. We then heard from two more police officers who responded to the theater as part of the investigation following the shooting. These were a remarkably rotund Sergeant David Duff 
and Corporal Christina Damas. Their brief testimony was an extension of the defense's ongoing effort to cast the overall investigation into the shooting as incompetent. Next up was Dawn Simpson, the woman seen in surveillance footage at the customer service counter talking to the theater manager when Reeves approached to complain about Olson's cell phone use. The defense on direct examination by attorney Escobar drew from Simpson testimony that Reeves appeared calm and reasonable in his demeanor at the customer service counter. The more interesting and rather bizarre facet of this testimony was the cross-examination by Prosecutor Manuel Garcia. Isn't it true, he asked hotly, that Reeves had indicated no sense of urgency in his complaint to the manager? Simpson agreed this was the case, but this testimony would appear to favor the defense narrative of Reeves as calm and reasonable rather than the state narrative of Reeves as the muttering, raving lunatic who would go on to murder Olson overthrown popcorn. Next up was the manager of the theater who was at that customer service counter, Thomas Peck. On direct questioning by attorney Escobar, Peck affirmed that the theater announcement to turn off phones had occurred prior to Reeves appearing to complain about Olson's cell phone use. Like Simpson, Peck also confirmed that Reeves presented as calm and reasonable, not irate or angry. Cross-examination was once again conducted by Prosecutor Garcia, who once again took the odd position of hotly demanding whether or not it was true that Reeves suggested no sense of urgency in his complaint to Peck. Peck agreed, but once again, this lack of any apparent urgency on the part of Reeves would seem to favor the defense rather than the state. The next witness after manager Peck was Dr. Bernard Adams, the last witness of the day, who, of course, we've already covered in detail. And that's pretty much it on the Reese trial for the moment, folks, at least in terms of yesterday's proceedings. Once again, of course, I'll be doing live stream analysis and commentary over at Rakita Law's YouTube channel. He's also on Rumble and Odyssey. Uh, you'll be able to find today's live show for the eighth day of the trial at the YouTube broadcast at lawofselfdefense.com slash popcorn eight. That's popcorn and the number eight. Today, we expect to hear from defense use of force expert witness, Dr. Roy Bedard, which should be fun, although apparently Judge Barthel has not yet made a final ruling on whether to grant the state's motion in limine to exclude Dr. Bedard's expert testimony or somehow constrain it. I suppose we'll find out about all that this morning. All right, folks, I hope you join us for the live broadcast today again at lawofselfdefense.com slash popcorn eight. Until then, remember, if you carry a gun so you're hard to kill, that's why I carry a gun. So I'm hard to kill. My family is hard to kill. Then you also owe it to yourself and your family to know the law so you're hard to convict. Until next time, I remain attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.